The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. We're going to do something different in today's show. Rather than me interviewing someone else, someone else will be interviewing me. And the someone else is Ben Nussbaum. He's editor and publisher of Spirituality and Health Magazine. And I guess this is the only way he ever gets to talk to me. (laughs) because he's so busy. So Ben, the show is all yours. All right. Well, thank you, Rami. Uh, And if I cut in and out, I apologize. I'm in a hotel uh, in New York. But yeah, so Rami, we've talked a couple times and I've deeply enjoyed those conversations. I read your columns, of course, which are now both in print and online. Uh, Plug to spiritualityhealth.com. But I don't know what makes Rami tick. And I think that your many devoted listeners are probably as curious as I am about your background and how you got to where you are. So I thought it would be fun to, to flip the tables, as you say, flip the script and uh, talk, talk about you. Okay. I think, I think in New York, you flip the script. In Las Vegas, you flip the table. <laughs> I gotcha. Well, we'll do both. We'll okay. do both just to, just to be sure. All right. So you are a scholar of religion with a very broad base in uh, not just Judaism, but also uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, I believe. Can you talk a little bit about what set you on that path when you were younger? Yeah, sure. Let me let me just push back on the word scholar. I really I'm not a scholar. I mean, I've been a university professor, but I'm not a scholar of religion. I'm basically a seeker. I'm just curious about religion in general, and then I share that curiosity with people through what I write for the magazine and and what we do on the podcast. So I don't call myself a scholar. But what set me on the path was an experience I had in high school when I was 16 years old. There were two professors, two teachers in my high school who got a grant to go to India for the summer and came back and started teaching a class they called Asian Civilizations. And I took the class, and I was just blown away. I'd never heard anything about it. I knew nothing. I was raised an Orthodox Jew. That's the only thing I really knew. And what I didn't find in Judaism, which was real deep spiritual insight and and exploration and and a technique to do that exploration on yourself, in this case, meditation, I was really drawn to this uh, material they were teaching, both Hindu and Buddhist, but at that time, specifically Zen Buddhist. And in my junior year, the summer between junior and senior year of high school, I was just learning how to meditate in the Zen style and was visiting a friend in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. He was off working, and I was sitting on the shore of a lake 
And I had, so I was going to say I had this experience, except I wasn't there to have any experience. So the, the language breaks down here, but what I think happened by reconstructing what I experienced after it happened, I seemed to have disappeared. Rami was gone. So there was no one to have an experience. So I was gone. I don't know how long I was gone. But when I came back into my normal waking state consciousness and I knew who I was and I knew where I was, I felt this overwhelming connectedness to the universe, this love from and for everything. And I found myself laughing hysterically, you know, sitting cross-legged on the sand on the shore of this lake. And the experience sort of proved to me that whatever the heck these people were talking about, there was a deep reality to it, and I wanted to explore it more. So that that's the, the trigger that set me off in that direction. Wow. That sure beats whatever I was doing between my junior and senior year in high school. <laughs> so it convinced you that following the path would lead you somewhere. Or nowhere, right? Because there's no, there's no, now I'm nitpicking, except I think it's important. It's, there's no you to be led anywhere and there's no where to be led to. There's no language for this. So there's no way really to talk about it. But, but I don't want to give the impression that I, Rami, went somewhere or experienced something. I, Rami, was gone. Mm-hmm. And only in retrospect, after I came back, do, do I come up with this story. But yeah, it, it was this confirming thing that this path, this Buddhist path, and later I found the same thing in Hinduism, and I actually found the same thing in Judaism once I knew where to look. This Zen path at that time in particular definitely was the trigger that led me, that led the not me to the no place, <laughs> then I'm, I'm in. Wow. I wish I could dwell on that moment, but we have a lot of ground to cover. So you, you spent about 10 years studying, and then you, you made a choice that might seem curious. You entered the military as a chaplain. Right. I mean, I went to college. I got my graduate degree in, for my undergraduate degree, I got a degree in religion. Then my master's was in religion. And then I went into rabbinical school because I, I wanted to know if, in fact, there was this similar kind of spiritual technology in my own tradition, which there is. And then while in rabbinical school, I enlisted in the Air Force, yeah, to be a chaplain. What led you to do that? What, what was the inspiration? I had this, I mean, it sounds really hokey, but I had this desire to serve the country and to do it in a way that I felt carried some integrity. So I wasn't, I'm not a warrior type, you know, I'm not going to go off and fly planes or shoot guns or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. I don't think I have that in me, but I wanted to be of service. And as a rabbi, there was a shortage of rabbis in the military and the Air Force sounded interesting as a place to go. So that's why I chose the Air Force. And they had this program because they were so shorthanded that they took uh, people right out of seminary. So uh, this is what I'm really curious about. In that kind of environment, you're a chaplain in the Air Force. People, I suppose in a way, people can choose to come to you, but it's not like they're choosing you out of 50 different spiritual advisors. They're not shopping, so to speak. You're the guy and they go to you. Was it hard for you to be your true self and express your beliefs because they were so complicated? 
Well, my experience with the Air Force was, number one, there were lots of chaplains. Every Air Force base that I served on, I was not the only chaplain. I was the only rabbi, but I wasn't the only chaplain. So whatever your denomination was, there was probably a chaplain with that label. Uh, so I basically only worked with with Jews. Now, I went out of my way to try to work with the young Air Force personnel who were on the, the tarmac and flying the planes. And I volunteered for all kinds of training missions just to meet you know, kids who had just basically come out of high school. And it, it was really quite a, a very positive experience for me. But you asked, you know, did I have to tone down? And the answer to that is no. I've never done that. I don't even know how to do that. And what I found with uh, the Jewish people on the Air Force bases was the same thing I find with Jewish people in most places. They are hungry for the mystical. They are hungry for something other than mainstream tradition, which they've basically left behind. Mm. Mm. Uh, so w- where do you think it's going in terms of, do you, do you think it will become more common for people to mix and match different elements of, of different uh, religious traditions? And do you think that's a good thing? I think it is going in that direction. Certainly not for everybody and not by you know next Tuesday. But when surveys are done, like the Pew survey on, on religious life in America, the, the fastest growing group are the group they call nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who do not affiliate with a specific religion. In my own terminology, I call them the spiritually independent. And they're spiritually independent the way politicians are or people are politically independent. They take some things from the Green Party and the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and the Natural Law Party, and they weave together their own sense of what's politically viable for them. I think what's happening among the spiritually independent is they're doing the same thing. Is that a good thing? So if your job is to maintain a cohesive, classical, mainstream understanding of your religion and a community that's devoted to it, no, it's a bad thing, but I'm not in that camp. I think it's a good thing. In the 21st century, people are outgrowing the narrow silos of organized religion and are slowly experiencing other things. That's why you have yoga in churches and yoga in synagogues. And so they're integrating, whether they call it Hinduism or Buddhism or not, into their own traditions. There's lots of books about by pastors, by priests, that talk about how Hinduism or Buddhism has helped them become a better Christian. So I think the trend is toward what Brother Wayne Teasdale called interspirituality. And it's not just pulling a belief from column A and one from column B and, and making a hodgepodge. It's really practice-based. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. We, we had an article on spiritualityandhealth.com a few weeks ago that said, and I'm paraphrasing, but something along the lines of, People who mix and match too much 
uh, tend to not get the, the full positive impact of religious practice, in part because, you know, that, that word practice. And, and I think that might be the, the potential drawback, is how do you have kind of rigorous leadership, almost, for lack of a better word, if someone wants to go down their own idiosyncratic path, and they don't have a lot of time necessarily to create a rigorous roadmap for themselves, I guess, for lack of a better word. So it's almost like we, we need a new generation of religious leaders for people who have chosen these idiosyncratic paths. I don't know if that question makes sense. No, I, I think I understand what you're saying. And, and I mean, the article is saying you have to dig one deep hole rather than a lot of shallow holes. So I, I don't disagree with that. I think, you know, a shallow spiritual practice gets you nowhere. I'm not so concerned for, well, let me, let me just do it personal. So I have a mantra practice. I repeat a variety of mantra uh, throughout the day, but you know, there's, there's some in Hebrew, there's uh, some in Sanskrit from my Hindu training. The collection of mantra that I recite is my collection. These are things that speak to me personally. So one I got from a guru when I was initiated into the Ramakrishna order of Vedanta Hinduism. So my, my guru, Swami Swahananda, gave me a mantra that I'm not supposed to tell anybody, and it's a secret thing, you know. I think they do that because he probably gives the same one to everybody, <laughs> and, you know, they don't want to discover that. But, um, so I, I do those things every day. Now, somebody would say, well, no, you got, you know, do Jewish or do Hindu, but don't do Hindu, you know, don't mix it up. But I, I, I don't find it mixing it up. It's a practice. It's mantra practice. The language I'm using changes with the different mantra that I'm dealing with. But the practice is a deep practice. You know, Hinduism is called Nama Japa, repeating a sacred word or name. And in, in Judaism, it's called Haga, which means cooing like a dove, repeating something over and over and over again. Every tradition has some kind of repetition practice like that. And... I think that you can go to teach to legitimate teachers to learn the practice, but then you can shape it to your own needs. Now, the other thing I wanted to comment on is because someone's going to say, I just don't have time to, to meditate 20 minutes a day or 20 minutes twice a day. But the truth is, and this may be heresy, but the truth is that's not enough anyway. <laughs> if you think that that length of time is what matters in your meditation, 20 minutes isn't going to get you anywhere anywhere better if there's somewhere to go than five minutes or 25 minutes or 125 minutes. The, ultimately, the practice can't do it because, and this again gets very esoteric, but there's no it that has to be done. We, we tend to think that spirituality is a journey. I'm trying to get from point A to point B, and the way to get there is yoga or meditation or prayer or whatever it is. But there, my, my approach is very different. It's not unique to me, but my approach is very different. There's no A and there's no B. That it's just waking up right now. Whatever causes that to happen is really not under your control. So I meditate. I do my chanting, number one, because I enjoy doing it. If I didn't, I'd never last at it. Number two, because I think it primes the pump for another event that happens of its own accord. In all the Zen stories I studied with all the years I was in the Zen world, nobody ever got enlightened while sitting cross-legged on cushions. They would sit cross-legged on cushions for you know days and days, sometimes weeks on end, and then they'd be out walking around and a leaf would fall down 
and the leaf falling down is what triggered their awakening. Would the leaf falling down have triggered their awakening if they had not spent so much time on the cushion? I would argue, no, it would not. But it isn't the cushion that causes the awakening. It just prepares you for something to happen through the grace of the universe or however you want to understand it. So the word rigorous, I'm not sure that's the right word exactly. And I know that's what organized religions will say. You really have to be rigorous. But I I think that's in a sense, misleading. That sort of puts you in a position of, oh, I got to find the right teacher and I got to find the right practice. There's really nothing to find. You have everything you need. You just have to realize what is true. And to do that, I think there are lots of teachers who can help us do that. And, and, and I'm speculating here, but I think that for most people, and of course, now you can tell it's speculation. It's a grand generalization. But for most people, I would say, the way to do this ultimately is retreat work. Go away for a weekend. Go away for a day if that's all you can do. But go away somewhere out of your normal you know, setting and be with a teacher and be with other people who want to be there to, to practice together. And you know, spend three, four days or more just doing this practice. I think that is more of a help than anything else. If a weekend practice, you know, if you go away for a weekend and you are steeped in a practice and you like the practice, chances are you'll adapt it to your daily life. And that's what my experience has been. But going periodically, every, I don't know, who can say what's enough for someone? But for me, uh, I lead retreats like this three or four times a year here in Tennessee. I have a regular place that I run these retreats. And then I lead them around the country. So the ones in, that I do in Tennessee, that's really a lot of it is the same people, maybe 75% return rate every time I do it, every three months, every four months, because that's their community. That's their practice community. That's their, in quotes, religion. They've given up on church and synagogue and mosque. They're not interested but they are interested in going away to a beautiful setting, in, in this case in Suwannee, Tennessee, and the foothills of the Columbia Mountains, and just being together with a group practicing. So I, I think that's what I would, if someone said to me, what should I do? I wouldn't say you need a rigorous practice, because that's like, oh, who's got time for that? I would say find some teacher that you find interesting and go away for a weekend and, and learn whatever that teacher is teaching. Excellent. Thank you, Rami, for your time. But before we move on, if a listener enjoys your podcast, what else are you up to? You've got books, you travel. How can people get more content from you? Well, if people want to read more from me, I write regularly for Spirituality and Health magazine. So it's Roadside Assistance is the column in the magazine, and it's Roadside Musings uh, is the column on the digital side. Then there's the podcast here. I have written over 30, well, I've written 36 books. So you can always Google me or, you know, go on Amazon and put my name in that way. And I'm starting a new blog at rabbirami.com where I'm doing the same thing I do at Spirituality and Health Q&A format, but it's only Jewish. So I get a lot of questions about Judaism that are just too... I mean, it just doesn't fit the format of spirituality and health. It's much too Jewish. So I'm taking those questions and I'm 
I'm answering them and putting them up online at rabbirami.com. The other thing I would say, my biggest nightmare is that I will run out of questions for Spirituality and Health magazine, that I'm going to wake up one day and there'll be nothing in my inbox. You know, that's it. You've answered every question that people have and you're done. So if you do have questions, then send them to me at rabbirami at gmail.com. And I answer them. I do my best to answer everybody's question directly. And the ones that seem to fit the magazine, uh, I'll you know, write the answer up formally and we make all kinds of changes so nobody knows who you are. But um, you know, I'll, I'll submit those to Ben and we'll have those posted on in the print magazine. But send me questions. Excellent. Thank you, Rami. You, you make this podcast stuff seem easy. It's hard. Well, you didn't have anything to work with, but <laughs> I, I got to tell you, it's the best job, this this podcast stuff. It really is a fantastic job. So I am grateful that I have this work. Well, we are happy to have you. Well, it is my pleasure. And because I love it so much, Ben, I'm taking the show back to read the ending. Excellent. <laughs> so thank you for talking with me. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I now write a bi-weekly column called Roadside Musings. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our executive producer is Ben Nussbaum. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.